0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's bow our heads together and ask His guidance and direction on our study this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that you have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word. You have revealed to us the beginning, and You have revealed to us our future destiny. And You have revealed to us where we fit within that path and uh, how we can prepare for our, that future destiny through a study of Your Word and our uh, our own spiritual growth. Father, we're just uh, thankful that we have this, this church, and we're thankful for many other congregations like this one around this country where the focus is on an in-depth study of your word that God, the Holy Spirit can use that to truly transform us, to transform our thinking and to shape us into the kind of men and women that uh, reflect the character of Jesus Christ in uh, all that we say and do. And fathers, we study your word now. We pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study, that we might look at uh, perhaps a few issues a little differently from your vantage point, from divine viewpoint and that it might uh, present us with a greater understanding of our future destiny. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, and we'll take a little time for review because it's been four weeks since we last were in Revelation. Revelation chapter 10 begins a new subsection of this book. Up through chapter 9, we've been looking at uh, two successive series of judgments. The first was a series of, called the Seal Judgments. The seals relate to seven seals on a scroll that was taken by the Lord Jesus Christ from God the Father. That is de- or was depicted... In Revelation chapter 4 and 5 in that heavenly scene, looking for someone qualified to take the scroll. The scroll represents a title deed, as it were, the right to rule and reign over uh, planet Earth and over uh, mankind. And to establish through the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, the rule over the planet that God had originally intended for Adam. And it is the Lamb of God who was slain for us. It is the Lord Jesus Christ because He died on the cross for our sins that He is qualified to take that scroll. Beginning in chapter 6, He began to open the seals, each seal representing a successive judgment. The seventh seal was opened at the um, uh, beginning of chapter 8 and there were revealed seven more judgments, another series, the Trumpet Judgments. And those trumpet judgments are covered, uh, the outline on the screen takes it through part of 11, but actually they are the six, first six are covered through 21, and the seventh trumpet judgment itself does not blow until the beginning of chapter uh, 15, and that uh, again reveals a third series of judgments the bowl are vile judgments as the King James translated it. And I believe that the first two series occurred during the tribulation period. Then the last series takes place during the last half. This is one of the most horrendous periods that occur uh, in all of human history as these judgments are ultimately designed to purify the planet to to judge mankind, the human race, in preparation for the return of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, to establish his kingdom upon the earth. At After the sixth trumpet judgment, which is covered in the ninth chapter, the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments in the ninth chapter, we come to a break in the action that comes in in chapter 10. And the break in the action is seen in the first verse. I saw the writer John, the apostle, is stating from his perspective, I saw still another mighty angel uh, coming down from heaven. And so there is a shift that occurs here as this mighty angel uh, descends with a little book. Uh, in his uh, left hand, this little book that's open in his hand. It's not identical to the scroll, but it is. it contains within it information that relates to what I believe has transpired already. Now, this is one of the things that's important to understand and get in our heads as we go go through the next uh, four chapters, 11 through 14. As we go through these next four chapters in Revelation that Um, these events covered in these chapters uh, really picture things that have been going on already. They, they, They depict things that have happened up to this point. So the writer is going to go back in some of these cases, back even before the tribulation, back into even some Old Testament events and pick up certain threads of, of uh, doctrine, threads of history in order to bring things up to the current time for him, that is the midpoint of the tribulation, so that we begin to see how all of these things begin to fit together as uh, Jesus Christ is bringing human history to a culmination point and to this final uh, judgment in history that culminates at the uh, campaign known as the battle, battle of Armageddon. Now, the first thing that is focused on here is going to deal with Israel again. There's a shift back to, okay, what's happening with the nation Israel? Presupposing that there's a distinction between Israel and the church, and that is going to be very clear to us in chapter 11. Chapter 11 does not have the church in it at all. As the church has been raptured, that occurred prior to chapter 4. The churches in heaven during this time, depicted by the twenty-four elders. So, chapter eleven focuses on these two witnesses or two prophets that come on the scene and their ministry to the remnant. That is the remnant of Israel, who is then depicted as the uh, as the woman uh, that comes up in the next uh, uh, next chapter. So, we have the ministry of the two witnesses, and so this actually begins. Uh, Chapter 11 will begin at the uh, opening days of the tribulation period and bring us up to a point just after the midpoint of the tribulation, which is when the Antichrist will um, will desecrate the temple at what is known as the Abomination of Desolation. Chapter 12 focuses uh, on Israel as well. What is happening with Israel? How do they fit within this? Within this uh, overall scheme, and that um, the remnant is, focuses on Israel as the woman, the woman that is depicted as clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars around her head, she gives birth to a child, which of course is the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there is also a focus on what is happening in relation to uh, in, uh, on Israel in relation to the overall angelic. Conflict, that rebellion that Satan initiated against God. And so there's the connection now brought in between uh, Satan and his oppression and persecution of the woman. And so this then takes us up through and into the second half of the uh, tribulation period. Then chapter 13 is going to focus on those two uh, personages that are empowered and serve Satan and his agenda during the tribulation period, the first beast and the second beast, the first beast uh, in the first part of Revelation chapter 13, uh, depicting the Antichrist, his conquest of, of the of ten nations, the establishment of that confederacy and his rule over the earth. And then his... Uh, uh, False prophet who validates him as a religious figure, as the antichrist, the as a substitute Messiah. That's the second beast, also known as the false prophet. And then in chapter of fourteen begins with a picture, a look at the Lamb of God who is on Mount Zion with the hundred and forty-four, uh, the hundred and forty-four thousand who are all martyred by that time, those 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes, as they prepare for that final, final conflict. And then chapter 14 also focuses on a proclamation of the gospel by three angels. And we see the interaction now between angels, demons, and human history as all the elements of God's creation are being pulled together in these final, uh, final events. So we'll be taking some time to go through uh, these three chapters or four or five chapters because they bring us up to a point where the last series of judgments are enacted in the uh, bowl judgments. Now last time we looked at uh, the opening of this little book and we saw that as the angel brings this, that this is indeed part of the answer to a prayer from martyred believers that is recorded in, back in Revelation six, ten, and 11. They cry, cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? And that is uttered by the martyrs who are martyred in the fifth seal judgment and they are ready calling upon God to execute justice on the earth and the answer is not yet just wait a little while until as we see the last phrase of uh, the last clause actually of revelation 6:11 until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed so God uh, says to them even as he has said to us many times in our own prayers it's not the right time yet I have a plan to bring to completion and when that plan is brought to completion, then I will answer the prayer. So what we see in chapter uh, 10 through 14 is God finally coming to that point, the answering of that particular, uh, that particular prayer. And in, so we come to Revelation chapter 10 uh, verses 1 and 2 and John says, I saw still another mighty angel. This is another of the same kind. I pointed out in the last study that there were three different mighty angels mentioned in Revelation. It's not a specific angel that we know of that's named. Some have thought it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not. It is just a powerful or strong angel who is sent on a mission, and that mission is related to revealing these judgments to John. Uh, He has a little book open in his hand. And that little book is going to contain, I believe, the judgments that are revealed and the information revealed in the uh, chapters 10 uh, through 14 up to the, uh, the bold judgments. And also included in this were thunder judgments that are mentioned, seven thunders mentioned in verse 4, which are John is told not to write down. So we do not have that information. But apparently these thunder judgments would occur uh, at the beginning of the second half of the tribulation uh, tribulation period. In verse in this structure of chapter ten, the first seven verses deal with the announcement from the mighty angel of the completion of God's plan to establish His kingdom. This is seen in verse seven, where He says, "In the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when He is about to sound." The mystery of God, this is the, in the days of the seventh angel, the seventh trumpet judgment, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. The second part of chapter 10, which we did not get to the last time, deals with a second commission to the Apostle John. The first commission came in chapter 1. I mean, at the end of chapter one, you might just hold your place there in chapter ten and turn back a few pages to the end of chapter one. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared in a, appeared to the apostle John on the island of Patmos where he had been uh, exiled for the gospel ministry and the Lord appears to him uh, at Uh, on the Isle of Patmos, and commissions him. And this commission, his original commission, is given in verse 17 of chapter 1. And the Lord said to John, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, reference to the resurrection. He says, I have the keys of Hades and of death, indicating his power over Death, because of the resurrection, and the keys indicate judgment. And all judgment, as we know from John chapter 5, has been given uh, to the Son. The commission is then articulated in verse 19. Write the things which you have seen, i.e. the things that John had just seen on the island, in terms of the vision with the risen Lord. The things which are, that is, those things that are are currently taking place in the church age. This would be the subject of chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this, the future things that begin in chapter 4. That description of the things which take place after this is covered from 4 to the end of the book of Revelation. And so that's the original commission. Now there's a reiteration of a commission here in uh, Revelation chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse... Uh, verse eight, then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So that just reiterates what we were told back in verse uh, back in verse one. His stance with his feet on the heavens and the earth indicates taking control his authority over over the planet and all that is on the planet it 's a uh, you have two allusions to god 's sovereignty over the planet, and the first is in uh, one two where he has his, the, this angel has his right foot on the sea, left foot on the land, the angel is an emissary of God, uh, the creator has that right, and then the fact that he swears in verse six by him who lives forever and ever who created heaven. And the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea, and the things that are in it. So he has authority over over the earth based on the based on God's creation of all things. And so uh, John goes to the angel, verse nine, and says, "Give me the little book." Now this little book is a book that contains. Of course, information contains reference to other judgments that have not yet been revealed. And so the angel is going to give this to John. Now, he's giving him this, this book that contains uh, information that hasn't been revealed yet. And what happens next shows the process of, uh, of revelations depicted in a uh, somewhat symbolic way. He said to me, the angel says says to John, the me is John, take and eat it and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Now, this sort of a command to take and eat the book or a scroll is not unique to this process with John a similar thing occurred in Jeremiah chapter 15 verse 16 where Jeremiah writes speaking of the Lord your words were found that is the words of the prophecies that Jeremiah uttered his judgments against Israel your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart also in Ezekiel, we have similar uh, symbolism and sim- similar imagery. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat the scroll, speak to the house of Israel. So Ezekiel says in verse 2, so I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. What's being depicted here? is the internalization of the word of God by the prophet. He is internalizing the message. He is taking in the word of God. It is imagery that is similar to that, that is used by the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 5 when he talks about the fact that he, he is the bread of life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have life. He is not talking literally. He is using the imagery of eating and drinking to picture uh, the internalization and the reception and the acceptance of truth. And in the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you take the time to study through John chapter 5, he's not talking about literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood. There is a uh, fascinating parallel th- development of three, uh, three word groups through the last part of John, believing Uh, coming to Jesus and taking and eating and drinking. And they are used together so that the abstract concept of belief or faith in Christ is parallel in that chapter to coming to Jesus. So coming to Jesus is a physical representation of, of accepting Him as our Savior, believing on Him that He died on the cross for our sins. The eating and the drinking also depicts faith, as seen in the parallels in that passage. It's not a literal eating and drinking, but as we eat and drink anything, when we eat food or drink beverages, that enters into our body and becomes one with us. And so it is pictures the acceptance and the reception of something into our being. And that is another way of looking at belief in Jesus. It's trusting him uh, as our Savior. Now, in these passages related to the message given the prophet... The prophet is accepting the judgment on God. It shows his submission to God and his role as a prophet and that the judgments that he is announcing are not coming out of his own uh, opinion. They're not coming out of his own me- mentality. They're not his desire. He's not on his own mission to uh, somehow execute justice or righteousness in Israel. Uh, he's not on his own personal mission of uh of vengeance or retribution because the people have rejected uh, the ministry of the prophet. It's nothing like that. It is simply a demonstration that the message has its origin in God. The prophet has internalized it, and the message of the prophet is that which was given to him by means of God the Holy Spirit. It's divine in its origin, and it is therefore without error. It is also... Um, a validation of the prophet as being a genuine spokesman for God. And so we, John has this same thing going on here. And so in verse 10 we read, Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, his acceptance of that message that it is God's message, not his message. And he says, It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became Bitter. Now, the angel had said, Take it. He had reversed the order, starting with the stomach to the mouth. So we have a chiasm here stomach, mouth, mouth, stomach in the order. But the order of eating is what is expressed by John in verse 10 that first you eat it, and it's sweet in his mouth. Now, that is the same thing that uh, Ezekiel had said that when he ate of the scroll, it was sweet in his mouth, because God's word is always sweet to us. Uh, Psalm 19 uh, pictures the value of God's word. Hold your place here and turn with me to the Old Testament to Psalm 19. We see how, again, picking up images from the Old Testament that are used again and again, showing again the unity of God's word and its consistency. The first part of Psalm 19 talks about the general Revelation of God, the heavens declare the glory of God in his firmament, shows his handiwork. So we speak of Psalm 19, 1 through 6 as praising the general revelation of God, the nonverbal revelation of God through his creation. And beginning in verse 7, down through verse 14, there is a praise to the written word of God the God's revealed truth that has been written down uh, by the prophets and apostles later on. Of course, at this time, there were only prophets, only part of the Old Testament has been written. Now, if you read this, we see the value that God places upon his word through the imagery that's here. The law of the Lord is perfect. The idea is that it is complete, it is sufficient, It is able to do that which is necessary considering the problem that man has. It contains the information man needs in order to be saved. The law of the Lord is perfect or complete, converting the soul. Then we have another parallel. Each of these verses uses different terms to describe uh, the word of God. The law of the Lord uses the word Torah for law, which means the instruction of the Lord. Torah it's not simply the law in terms of Mosaic law, but the root meaning of the word Torah is instruction. It is God's instruction on how to be righteous. We become righteous by trusting in Christ as our Savior. When we trust in him, his righteousness is imputed to us, and we are declared righteous. But now that we are saved, how do we live to be experientially Righteous. That comes from the instruction of God's Word. It, the testimony of the Lord is the second way in which He uh, expresses the revelation of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It's not a matter of IQ. It's not a matter of education. It is simply a matter of studying God's Word. I can't tell you how many people I know who have had just, just limited uh, education. Uh, whatever their background was, uh, they, they didn't get good education. Maybe they didn't have a very good high, very good IQ. Maybe they had um, learning disabilities. And I can think of two or three examples off the top of my head of people who the world would not consider to be very bright at all, and yet I have seen people like like these three I have in mind who come in. Uh, to church have been under my ministry, and have come in and sat and just said, you know, this is the truth. This is the word of God. I need to, I need to learn the word. Uh, that's important. I may not understand everything he says, but I'm going to be here every time he's teaching. And they come, and I, th- I think of one lady who was uh, in my church in Connecticut, and and she just was, uh, boy, she just had more. Um, uh, deficits against her, you might say, socially, educationally, economically, um, and not a, a high native IQ, but she came all the time. When she finally joined the church up there, she was, uh, the procedure was to ask, similar to what we have here, to ask the, interview the members and to ask them three questions. First of all, have get tell us how you're going to to heaven? On what basis are you saved? Second question Have you read the Constitution and the doctrinal statement? And is this what you believe? And third, are you willing to submit yourself to the leadership and direction of the, of the local congregation, the leadership? And um, that afternoon, after she joined the church, every one of those deacons emailed me to tell me that in the 15 or 20 years that they had been interviewing. Uh, candidates for membership in that church she gave the clearest explanation of the gospel of anybody and that's just a testimony to the fact that it doesn't depend on how great your education is or how great your iq is or any human factor god will make his word clear the issue for you is volition and are you going to be dedicated to be in the uh, in bible class and come to church on Sunday morning to study his word so that God can use it to transform you so the Lord's word makes wise the simple verse 8 says that the statutes of the Lord are right rejoicing the heart they cause our soul to rejoice their heart refers to the uh, inner uh, immaterial part of man it's almost synonymous to the soul as it is in several places and the heart rejoices because it is, the word is right, it is the source of righteousness. And then verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Now, I want to say something about this clause here, this strophe, because there are times when we get the idea that the Mosaic law somehow wasn't just quite right. I mean, look at what the problem that Jesus has with the Pharisees, and they're always citing the Mosaic law. It's not because the Mosaic law had a flaw. Paul says that the law is perfect and righteous and good in Romans chapter 7. It was the Pharisees' distortion, their misinterpretation and their legalistic application of the law that made it wrong. But what we have here is a clear statement that the mandates of the law of the Lord within the Mosaic law are pure. There is no error there. Uh, and thus it can enlighten the eyes that is that it is the source of enlightenment for us for truth. And then finally, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, what's his conclusion having stated all of that about the value of the Word of God? He says, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. There is nothing in this life, more valuable than your personal knowledge of the Word of God. As Doug was pointing out in his testimony earlier, we never know what's coming our way. We never know what future uh, adversity there might be in our life. And the only thing that can prepare us for that future adversity is the Word of God. And once the adversity comes, it's too late to get it. That's what's depicted in Proverbs chapter 2. Wisdom is knocking at the door. And if you don't let wisdom in when you have the opportunity, then when the house starts to burn down, it's too late to go get the wisdom. And if you haven't prepared yourself ahead of time through a consistent study of the word, then when that time comes that you need it, it's not there. So it's more to be desired than gold. Gold is the most valuable substance that that was known in the ancient world. And so it, this speaks of uh, the high value to be placed upon a knowledge of God, God's word. Yea, then much fine gold, no matter how much, nothing, no amount of material possessions or wealth uh, can match the value of God's word in your soul. And then there's a, a comparison to sweetness, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. It, just as we eat a sweet, and maybe you don't have a sweet tooth like some of us around here, but uh, no matter whatever you want to use for your metaphor in your culture works also. It's sweeter than Bluebell or Ben and Jerry's or chocolate cake, whatever your uh, sweet tooth desires. The Word of God is sweeter than that. It is, gives such pleasure to us when we come to hear it and to understand it. And that is what both Ezekiel and John are alluding to here in these passages that talk about eating the word, turn back with me to Revelation 11, eating the word, and it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. It is pleasurable. Uh, as John s- understands, assimilates and understands the judgment that God is going to bring against the earth dwellers and as he is going to bring to completion the judgment against Satan and evil, this is something that uh, is sweet to him because finally there will be justice. And this has been a call and a cry from uh, fallen man for centuries. Lord, how long will the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. And we've been waiting for God to bring about that ultimate justice. And when John first uh, hears it, reads it, assimilates it, it's sweet. Oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be great to see God's judgment. But then, as he contemplates the severity of that judgment, and the vast amount of human lives that will be lost, and just the horrors that come, it turns bitter in his stomach. That's the significance of that metaphor. Not that it's not right, but he realizes that the judgment of God, while it is right and while it is true and while it is necessary, it is not something that the believer or God will rejoice over. God rejoices over the salvation of each individual. It is his desire that all be saved, though not all will be saved. So it is not for us to uh, to think about these judgments as something that give a sort of vindictive pleasure or to look upon the study of prophecy or end-time events as something where finally the, the devil is going to get his. Uh, anybody who has mistreated me is going to get theirs but when we realize the severity of it uh, it is something that is going to be extremely uh, extremely severe and extremely harsh and then we come to the last part of the commission in verse 11 and he the angel said to me you must prophesy again about many peoples nations tongues and kings And these peoples relate to different people groups, different, the descendants going back all the way to Genesis uh, chapters uh, 10 and 11, dealing with the descendants of Noah. The nations, these are the Gentiles, uh, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. The term ethnoi in its plural can be nations or Gentiles. And I think that in light of the context that comes up, because there's a listing of these uh, peoples, nations, languages, and kings several times in the next few verses. That foreshadows what the content of 11 through 14 is going to be, these judgments against the peoples, the Gentiles, various languages, and the kings, the rulers of the earth dwellers. And so that is the commission that is given to John. And then immediately, the angel gives him something. Forget the chapter division there between chapter ten and chapter eleven. There is a. It immediately moves to the next verse. Then I was given a reed, like a measuring rod. Now this is gets into a completely new subject that is really important, very much in depth. Is trying to understand. What happens in these next two verses? Uh, John will be given a reed like a measuring rod. The angel says, rise and measure the temple of God. What does it mean to measure? What temple of God? Every place else that we read the phrase temple of God in Revelation, it refers to the heavenly temple. Measure the temple of God, the altar. Which altar? Altar of incense or bronze altar? And those who worship there. Well, who are they? And what kind of worship is this? Is this a worship that is acceptable to God or a worship that is apostate in its origin? Uh, we, don't, we will get into that uh, next time. And this sets the stage for the appearance of the two witnesses, these two uh, prophets that come on the scene to oppose uh, the Antichrist. And we will get to that uh, next time. What we see, though, in chapter 10 is the value of taking in the word just as John took in his prophecy, that the word of God needs to be the most important thing in your life and in my life. It is not an option for us as believers. Uh, John often talks about the fact that those who are born again don't sin. Those who are born again are righteous. Those who are born again do this. What he's essentially saying is that if you're in the family of God, You don't do these things. Just like when I was growing up, if I was disobedient or had done something that uh, shamed or embarrassed my parents, I was told that in this family you don't do that. It isn't that I couldn't do it or hadn't done it. It's that that wasn't the standard. And there is a standard for members of God's family, and that standard is to desire the Word of God and make it a priority and to assimilate it into your thinking. And that means that we have to be retrained in our thinking, and that is the role of the local church. The purpose of the pastoral ministry is not that the pastor is the CEO. It's not that the pastor is just a visionary. It's not that the pastor is everybody's friend and glad hander and goes down and, and uh, s- visits people in the hospital It is that the pastor is someone who is to train people to think biblically so that when they go out and face the issues in life, they can respond the way God would have them uh, to respond. And you can't be trained to think in an hour a week, even three hours a week. You have to spend time listening every day, studying, thinking, reflecting, interacting with what has been taught meditating on is what the scripture calls it so that you can uh, think not like the world but as God thinks let's bow our heads and close in prayer father thank thank you for this opportunity to study your word today to be reminded about its value its importance that there's nothing more valuable for us than your word that it as the psalmist said it's in the light of your word that we see light that your word alone enlightens our soul it is your word that is pure And it is your word that gives us wisdom and that it is sweeter than honey and more desirable than gold. So, Father, we pray this morning that you would challenge us with the uh, importance in our lives to reevaluate our priorities, that we might make your word the most important thing in our life and in our thinking. We pray that there's anyone here this morning that's not sure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right now, you can make a decision. You can trust in Christ as your Savior. Believe that he died for you. And when you believe this, God knows it. In his omniscience, he is aware of what you are trusting in for your salvation. And at that instant, he imputes to you perfect righteousness and declares you justified. He regenerates you and gives you eternal life, and this can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we need to learn from this morning's lesson and that we would implement that in our own lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.